0: Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Welcome to the Commonwealth Club of California, your premier public affairs forum started in 1903 by community volunteers, people with ideas and urgencies willing to educate the public about the important ideas and issues of their time. Those topics have changed over the course of 118 years of programming. But the need for knowledgeable, engaged volunteers to actually produce programs here at the club has not changed. If you think you have something to offer to the club by way of energy, specialized knowledge, an inquiry mind, and the community service, please contact the Commonwealth Club and inquire about the member-led forums. My name is Carol Fleming, and I am the chair of the member-led forums and a member of the Board of Governors, and happily, your moderator for today. Should you have any questions, please submit them via the chat or the comment opportunity on your screen. And I hope you'll notice the opportunity to donate to the Commonwealth Club. We are especially honored today to have with us Professor Scott Vogelsong, a musician, a teacher, and a writer. He is Chair of the Department of Musicianship and Music Theory at the San Francisco Conservatory of Music, a faculty member at the University of California, and at the Fromm Institute at USF. And today he speaks of music, comfort, and joy. Professor (laughs) Vogelsong.
1: Well, thank you very much, Carol. And thank you all for being here this morning. When we started talking about doing something like this, I I flashed on a relative of mine who is facing very shortly retirement uh, after a lifetime in law. And as she faces this retirement, she told me that she doesn't really know what she's going to do with herself. Without the law there that keeps her busy, she was thinking, well, gosh, you know, I don't know right now. She's very much at sixes and sevens about this. And as we were talking, I thought, well, you know, okay. You make a whole lot more money than I do and you have a much better retirement program than I have, but I've got something you haven't got and that is I never have to worry about what happens if I ever do retire. I may not, but if I do, I don't have to worry about it because I have a life in music. I have a life in music and that never runs out. Yes, I may stop teaching classes or I may stop doing this or doing that, but music itself will never end. It's always there, always wonderful, always something that I can discover, something uh, that I can study, something to explore. It never, never ends. And as I got to thinking about this and realizing, you know, music is not a living, it's a life. And as I thought more and more about that, let's take a look at four examples of either music that represents this lifetime joy or performers themselves that have represented this lifetime joy. So I've chosen four examples. The first of them is the great French conductor, Pierre Monteux, and the lifetime he spent with one big composition, which was Ravel's ballet, Daphne et Chloé. That's the first. The second is me, and my lifetime spent playing the piano, and what that has meant to me over... 63 years so far of playing the piano uh, uh, on my own. Then for third, I'd like to speak about the great composer Joseph Haydn and the unquenchable optimism of his great oratorio, The Creation, that he wrote during his golden years. And finally, a very, very well-known composer, Ludwig van Beethoven, who was experiencing an absolutely devastating personal crisis and yet created the astonishing finale of his third symphony, the Eroica, in the midst of all of this personal depression and personal despair. So first up, let's talk about Pierre Monteux, the French conductor, and Ravel's Daphnis et Chloé. Now, Daphnis comes from 1912, Ravel spent three years writing the score. He was a very slow, meticulous writer, and he had pretty much a green light from his producer, who was Sergei Diaghilev at the Ballet Russes in Paris. He had a green light to more or less do whatever he wanted. <laughs> and that included using an absolutely gargantuan orchestra, one of the biggest ever used for a ballet score, and a wordless chorus in the background. The thing actually got produced. It's hard to imagine a ballet company being able to afford something like this now, but it did. And it was one of the great hits of this little pre-war era at the Ballet Russe. This was an incredible era of this time. During this period, Stravinsky's early ballets, The Firebird, Petrushka, and The Rite of Spring all saw their premieres as well. Now, at the Ballet Russe, they had a house conductor who had come in right about 1910-ish or so. His name was Pierre Monteux, and he was a viola player who had played in the foley Berger Orchestra and had started working as a conductor. And he got brought in to conduct the world premiere of Petrushka, Stravinsky's Petrushka. And shortly thereafter, he got the premiere of Daphnis and Chloe, Daphnis and Chloe, and so he conducted the premiere of that. Uh, I should mention, the next year, he conducted the premiere of The Rite of Spring, which was a famous sort of riot in the audience that night, but he got these great premieres. Now, the name, for many of you, might be familiar, Pierre Monta, if you've been here in the Bay Area for a while, because Pierre Monta became the conductor of the San Francisco Symphony in 1935, and he remained our conductor until 1952. And after he left, he freelanced for a while, and then, this is wonderful, he got the directorship of the London Symphony Orchestra in 1961, when he was 86 years old, and he insisted, get this, on a 25-year contract. <laughs> I love that. Talk about optimism, huh? Uh, he, this was his last, of course, major post as the conductor of the LSO. A few years before, he had conducted Daphnis and Chloe with, the, Los, uh, with the, the London Symphony Orchestra and Chorus in 1959. So 1959, a beautiful, modern recording, right? A, a wonderful, fresh, stereo, high-fidelity recording. He got everything he wanted. And so we get this man who had conducted the premiere of the piece 47 years later, giving us this astounding recording. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to play one particular part of Daphne and Chloe. I'm going to put up a a screenshot for you here, a share, that not only gives you the recording of the part of it, but shows you a bunch of pictures taken from production of Daphne and Chloe over the years and some paintings of the legend as well. So here comes my share uh, coming up which uh, will have this uh, beautiful picture to start with, okay, that is here. You should be seeing this, I think, at this point now. And the, uh, we want to make sure that I've got... Yes, we do. All right, you're going to hear this performance of The Sunrise, which is begins, opens Act 3. Again, this is a ballet score. It's hard to imagine anybody could write anything this lavish and this out there for a ballet score. But he did. Here we go. <laughs> That's mm-hmm. is that wonderful. I, it, it's one of those pieces. If I need a pick me up, uh, I'm going to put put on uh, put on. Do we have any questions coming through, or how are we doing so far, Carol?
0: Mm-hmm. Well, let me uh, see. I don't see any um, so far.
1: Well, then um, we'll just keep forging right on ahead here. Yeah.
0: yeah. <laughs> I, saw, I saw a predominance of Chagall, I believe, in your, your illustrations. You find him particularly uh, uh, right for this music.
1: I do. I, I, I think a, uh, Chagall and other modern, I, I, the piece, despite all of its opulence, has a certain uh, modernist quality and almost a zen-like quality that it's so very clear and precise despite being as lavish as it is. Oh. Um, oh. Yeah. Uh, he was a, he was an extraordinary uh, orchestrator. He would spend, uh, I understand he spent close to six months laying out the orchestration of the last three minutes of this, which is this huge bacchanal at the end. Uh, yeah. His, yeah. his catalog is very small, Ravel's catalog. It's uh, just, you know, a few pieces because it took him so long to get everything the way he wanted. But everything's in the repertory he didn't he didn't write any throwaways or any pieces that are in embarrassment or anything he everything was just so beautifully made this just precision mm. to Exquisite. Exquisite. there are very few composers who can match him in that uh, there's a baroque composer named Corelli Arcangelo Corelli who also wrote mm. with this kind of precision and care, mm. and Corelli's output's very small too. <laughs>
0: you know, most most of us on the outside think, is there something there we can hum in the <laughs> sense of a melody of a thing? But you hear the orchestration here is so dense and lush and figured and subtle. And my mind is picturing the piccolos coming in here and the strings rumbling down here. It's a collage mm-hmm. of uh, fabric-y uh, lusciousness. Mm-hmm. And I saw on the, the pictures that you show of the ballet I thought of extreme sensitivity to the the music with the the, the dancers and the setting mm-hmm. practically an abstraction. Yes uh, there I, uh, mm-hmm. must have been hugely uh, received by an audience. I mean, Could they even breathe after something like
1: that? <laughs> you wonder. I've I often wondered what it would have been like to be in the audience for those early seasons of the Ballet Russe. Uh, yeah. it, it could, they couldn't sustain that for long. I mean, the, the, the First World War pretty much killed off those big lavish productions. They well, kept going, but it was much simpler productions, of I course. Uh, yeah. But the dancing, you know, this, this was the company that was Nijinsky's company uh, uh Nijinsky and Karsavina and Mikhail Fokin um all of these people that went on to dominate ballet in the rest of the 20th century mm-hmm. uh I, f- people like Balanchine you know who comes directly out of this tradition uh this all started there and uh, with uh you know Diaghilev and the Ballet Russe this is was one of those conglomerations of artists uh some of the well, there's one I can think of that had music by Debussy Choreography, uh, choreography by Karsavina, and scenery by a young Pablo Picasso. Mm. <laughs> yeah, just the best, mm. you know. Always the best. Mm. They kept mm. going for quite a while. Uh, uh, the uh, in the later years, of course, Stravinsky wrote a lot of ballet scores uh, for for Diaghilev, uh, and uh, this was this was Ravel's one big thing for him. But uh, it's quite an amazing work, I think. Uh, with that. He also, by the way, extracted some suites from it. There's a, orchestral suites, so that's an easier way to get to the music instead of having to plow through the hour-long mm-hmm. ballet. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, And one last trivia, by the way, Monteau recorded one of those suites in the late 1940s with the San Francisco Symphony. So there is an SF Symphony recording of part of Daphnis and Chloe with Montau conducting it. And yeah. then, of course, this London Symphony recording, which is one of the great landmarks, I think, of the gramophone—magnificent uh, yeah. thing. Yeah. Uh, so this is this is the kind of music, you know, that you think of a composer lavishing this kind of care on this, uh, and then the piece just staying with us all these years. This wonderful joy of having a piece like this, and that now, thanks to recordings, we can visit whenever we want. We don't have mm-hmm. to get an expensive mm-hmm.
0: ticket and go to the ballet. Uh, you know the the fluidity and lushness of this music just seems to invent ballet <laughs> yes. invent these flowing garments that- the arm movements, the uh, graceful pirouettes. Just, uh, I think any of us can become a dancer to music like that.
1: I think so. It makes us all look good, doesn't it? Uh, even yeah, a two yeah, left yeah, feet yeah. person like me. <laughs>
0: I doubt that.
1: Oh, I most musicians can't dance. We're, we're notorious. Uh, yeah, so, well, let me move on a little bit, and then let's let's get into my own, uh, my own experience here in music, uh, uh, which is, of course has been pretty much, I would have to tell you, a, uh, a really a lifelong uh, fascination of course with the piano. I actually started playing when I was four years old uh, and my parents bought my sister a little upright spinet piano uh, and she, uh, she never took to it. The music was just never gonna be her thing. But I commandeered it and I was getting lessons by age four. Uh, so, the piano, for most of my life, especially as a child it wasn 't learning pieces from music and playing. I could do that, but I was very reluctant i, I didn 't honestly really like that very much, and most of my teachers kind of thought I was a talented but recalcitrant student who wouldn 't practice his pieces properly. What they didn 't know was that I was sitting at home improvising like crazy, making up music left and right, and playing by ear uh, things i 'd heard and just playing them back and I did that constantly. For every 15 minutes I spent practicing my Mozart sonata, I was playing two hours of just kind of going at it. And I never let the teachers know that. Uh, they, they, I was kind of, I don't know, somehow embarrassed by it or something. I don't know. Um, and But I did get... I got good enough to, to go into professional training, went to conservatories and all this. And I did eventually... <laughs> Become a a responsible pianist, you know, who can learn a piece off a score and do a good job with it. It never really came naturally, though. I, I, to this day, remain somebody for whom the piano was always as much just a big relief and a release and a joy. Uh, The piano for me was as much for what baseball is to some other kids or so on. It was Mm -hmm. just, it's where I went to blow off steam. Uh, with that. It
0: seems to me that you are a natural born jazz player.
1: Well, I think I would have been. And I also, in a different era, I think I might've become like a songwriter or a, uh, like a Broadway type composer. I don't know how good I would have been, but in a different era, uh, I might've been that. It's also pretty clear that part of my talent was in some ways a composer's talent uh, that with that but of course I grew up in an era when it, when composition was maybe a little you know it's very there's a lot of really pretty awful music going out there and uh, when I got to conservatory I just didn't want to have anything to do with the music I was hearing around me it was all the serialist music and all the blip-blop and mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: so I never did pursue it uh, I never did but I did of course become a reasonably <laughs> responsible pianist and I, you know, still play some, still play. And uh, one thing that I, I recently did, I wanted to share this, it was kind of fun, is I played a piece for a colleague of mine who was receiving an award. And uh, we uh, we did a little ceremony, you know, for her. It was a Zoom thing. And so I decided, she had asked that I play something. And so I played a Rachmaninoff prelude. And this was a lot of fun because it's it's, a, it's an illustration of, how we've come along in the musical world solving one of the biggest problems of having a piano and being a pianist, and that is the piano itself. Pianos, they're big, they're heavy, they're expensive, especially nowadays, $100,000 or more, right, for a decent instrument, much more they they're loud, you know if you unless you live in a like a house like I do, you can't really have a piano comfortably because you're going to drive your neighbors' nuts. Well, digital technology has come to the rescue in many, many ways, and this particular recording, which I made sitting right here on this thing right here, uh you see it's like, ha ha, it's piano uh, and what I did is the recording is made using a piano software piano that actually runs on my computer it's a a software instrument many 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 gigabytes of data that it requires uh it very very large uh gigabytes and it very faithfully samples and reproduces the sound of a nine-foot hamburg steinway uh very very accurately it's extremely good And then when I made the recording, I made it live. It's a recording I I made using Zoom. But the computer is making the sound. I'm playing on this over here. I'm playing on this. But it's not making any sound. It's simply controlling the computer. Uh, So it's it's all done with this very high-tech stuff. But the recording comes out sounding for all the world. Like I'm sitting at a Hamburg Steinway in a concert hall, and mm-hmm. it's all nuanced. Everything, you know, everything I'm doing gets captured mm-hmm. perfectly by it. And I could do it right here in my home office family room, which is where it is, without having to rent a hall, without having to rent a piano. Uh, this mm-hmm. was during the pandemic. <laughs> so I did not have to risk anything. And I made it as a video recording with the sound. So, I'm going to go ahead and share out uh, my screen for this now. And this piece is an um, early 20th century work by Sergei Rachmaninoff, uh, the great Russian piano composer. This is very much a product of the 19th century. He, he lived into the 20th, but his writing was fundamentally 19th. It's one of his preludes. Here's the share, okay, for piano in G major. And uh, I made this recording of this just about a year ago. Um, it's, I, I did a number of takes to get it the way I wanted it, so I can't tell you it's a spontaneous live performance. But it is completely unedited, and it is me sitting right here in this room using a computerized piano. So here we go. And there we are. And then I am turning off the camera there in the video. Uh, it's, it's a good, good example of how much technology has uh, served to enable us and empower us in the music business. Uh, extraordinarily so, really. Extraordinarily so. Um, that these sort of things are possible and doable. Uh, and, doable. Now, uh, so some people who think that like digital pianos sound fake and or, you know, a song. No, not anymore. Not anymore. Yeah. And mm-hmm. they don't feel fake either. It, it's it's the, that instrument I use has feels it's got the same action as a full size piano. So
0: amazing. You know, i full disclosure. I'm I'm one of uh, Mr. Vogel Song's devoted students <laughs> at the Fromm. And we see his piano there in the corner as he he teaches us. And I thought, well, that's just his little practice piano. His Steinway is clearly <laughs> off-camera somewhere. And here he is, one of these marvelous instruments. But no, that's all, and that is um, not just a little Casio keyboard, is it?
1: Oh, no, that's a Clavinova. That's a Yamaha Clavinova. And it's, it, it's time I bought it, it was top of the line. It's designed to be a working musician's instrument. And... Wow. Uh, so it makes its own sound, of course. I mean, if I want to, but the fact is, it's um, it costs, of course, a fraction of what a you know a Steinway would cost. It weighs about four hundred okay. pounds, so you know it's uh, uh, so because it's it weighs about the same as your average spinet upright piano, mm-hmm. and uh, but no, it's these these are your way to go. But I also don't need tuning, you know, which is nice um yeah. about every two years i have a tech guy come out and work over it because it does you know they do develop you know keyboard problems and so well,
0: on. how long has an instrument like this been available uh
1: in fairly uh they started about 20 years ago more or more um oh. the the technology to make this happen has been around actually since the 1970s uh but it had to be refined of course um the same sort of technology that makes computers better and better makes one of these because they are inside. They do have, they are computers inside. They have memory and storage and processors and the whole, whole bit. So the latest versions of these are even better because they can do fancier processing and they've got more memory. This instrument's about 10 years old. So, um, it's, you know, they, they keep getting better and better. And, um, but for people looking for a home piano, I always recommend they get something like this. Not, not the little cheap, you know, plasticky things.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But, you know, get something like this. It, it's about the same weight as a spinet piano and the same size. But, you know, it's way cheaper to, to maintain, much more reliable. And for the cost of a service call every couple of years or so to, to get some adjustments made, it should last pretty much forever. Uh, the only downside, of course, is a real piano you can play when the lights go out. <laughs>
0: yeah. But you said this can revert to being a real piano. In a switching sense. Switching off the power. Yeah, yeah but yeah. it won't
1: play. It requires power to work. Oh, uh, I see. Yeah, yeah.
0: okay. Itself,
1: right. When it's making its own sound, uh, which I just turned it on to make its own sound, this is how it sounds yeah. by itself. What's yeah. Thing? Good, um, you know, um, it's uh, but if power goes out, you won't hear anything but clunking from the keys. So there is that. But you know, it's the same problem every digital musician uh, faces. You know, we have to have power. Um, you know, the conservatory, many ours, along with many, has a technical. Uh, it's called the Tech Major, a technology and applied composition. And it's for students who do this kind of work with digital and electronic music as a career, and uh, it trains them in that whole separate major. Um, so this it's, is this is a big part of our world in music is technology.
0: Well, um, it seems to me, uh, and I'm totally ignorant on this topic, that you could play and actually do a comp, compose, and it would be have a permanent record of it. You could write music for you. Using lines and spaces, as you say.
1: Yeah, yeah, you do. Uh, All you have to do is run the output of this, for example, into a music notation program, and then it will notate as you go. Now, you have to set it to make sure it's not too literal about it all, you know, computers being the way they are. Uh, Another fun thing with these is that you make recordings. It's um, the signals it sends out, the information it sends out as you play it. That can all be captured by software and then that's a program called a sequencer you can open that up and you can actually modify your recording just by moving notes around and changing this and doing that so if you're playing something and you make oh. a unit clunker you don't have to retake you just open it up with that and fix it uh, oh
0: boy yeah. oh, oh, oh i bet the i bet the uh Vivaldi's and Haydns of their time would have loved to have had that capability without oh, yeah. all the paperwork
1: yeah, we we wondered if if uh, some of these programs like Sibelius and Finale, which are the notation programs, if someone like you know if Mozart had had that, there probably wouldn't be some fifty-five odd symphonies. There'd probably be five hundred some odd symphonies. Mm-hmm. Uh, they just because it, of so much you know the the speed with which you can notate and process. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, yeah, we don't we don't deal well, with can... music much anymore. Uh, it's it's I,
0: a... I can imagine. Mm -hmm. Um, um, would be composer just doodling around on a piano like that, Mm -hmm. going to bed and next day reading. God, I did something really neat last night, and he would retrace it and find it. And there there it was. And I can sleep peacefully knowing that the piano, the computer will remember that magical passage that I came up with. So psychologically, it's got to be tremendously different.
1: It's a very different world. Um, It it can change the way people write. And I know a lot of serious composers who really prefer to start working in the traditional manner on manuscript paper with pencil and so on. However, at some point or another, you are going to put it into your computer because uh, these notation programs also do very professional typesetting. And all of us expect our scores from composers now to look like they went off to Oxford University Press or uh, Baron Ryder or Henley. They they because they produce these beautiful scores. We just don't read from handwritten manuscript anymore. Uh there's no cause. Yeah, so oh.
0: well I went to a concert at uh Davies Hall the other night with the, the wonderful um uh, mm-hmm. Gregory Dank. Yeah, Jeremy and I saw in the initial part of the program mm-hmm. that he had a keyboard, a, a, a tablet, secreted mm-hmm. up in the, his, uh, his piano with a foot thing yes. there. So there's a possibility that he wasn't really doing it. He's just pressing that uh, <laughs> thing and let, <laughs> yeah. let it go.
1: I'll tell you what he was doing. Uh, he, had, uh, he had one of these, probably. It was something like this, okay? And yes, yeah. he had one of, okay, and he had one of these, right? Exactly so, yes. Okay, now what he was doing on this, this is where his sheet music was. Uh, he was using a program, is one called Fourscore, and we a lot of us use this. And Fourscore, okay, you can put printed music into it, and then you turn the pages either by just, you know, Clicking the button and it changes pages, right? And if you want, you can use one of these puppies to click those pages. Yes. It's a page turner. That's, That's
0: what, what I it. thought.
1: Yeah. yeah. So when you have this running, you hit it with your foot and your page turns so you don't have to reach up and you don't yes. have to.
0: Reach oh, up. what an immense. Yeah. benefit uh, that is for performance
1: oh heavens yeah, yeah. this is uh these things uh, Ed, he might have had a larger one this is the smallest one but i use this uh this ipad is my faithful tool that i not only use as a uh, perf- as a performing i also teach with this uh because you can of course write on an ipad and i share this screen out over zoom and i yeah. use it as whiteboard for my classes Apple didn't know what they were doing when they introduced these tablets, but they actually made it. It's a revolution for all of us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but you can use these for all sorts of things. And of course, these can also these are computers, so they can hold instruments and you can, you know, use them to make music and sound. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, we are. Oh, heavens, our world, our world. What a
0: playground
1: for you. I tell you, you know, you can get really caught up in it. Um Sometimes maybe to your own detriment where you forget about the uh, possibilities. Uh, But wonderful fun. Um, Do we have any questions coming in or are we just kind of having ourselves a final time I think,
0: think, uh, let me just check the uh, chat here. No questions uh, so far. Well,
1: then I tell you what let's do here. Um, One of the things that I think I love the most uh, about many, many musicians and music in general is the extreme optimism that it can engender. You know, we were talking about music as comfort and music as joy. Um, I take a lot of my joy in music that exudes confidence and optimism. Uh, I don't have to have that for all of it, but I really do love it. And this is one of the reasons why if uh, somebody asked me what, what era would you like to live in if you're not living in your current era? I would choose the second half of the 18th century because that's the Viennese classical era in music, yeah. and the Enlightenment, you know. Yes. One of the reasons, this is Haydn and Mozart and young Beethoven, and I would choose this era also because of the extreme optimism they had. Uh, they knew that we can't fix human nature, but maybe we can do some work on human society. <laughs> <laughs> maybe we could make this a little better. Maybe we can improve governments. Uh maybe we can make things better. And that sense of optimism permeates this era. And Haydn, above all, he's a product of this era. He's an, almost an exact contemporary of George Washington, so that's a good way to look at him. Haydn wrote music that so often Full of mental health, very much so. Full of optimism, full of joy. He is a non-neurotic composer. <laughs> uh, the kind of neuroticism that we sometimes enjoy in music, and I do too. Um, you don't really find it in Haydn.
0: What are the cues for this optimism? Are we talking about C yeah. major? Oh.
1: Well, in a way, but what we're really talking about is uh, an overall approach to writing music in which the structure is very clear and clean, beautiful melodies that gonna stay away from the darker chromatics and so on. But at the same time, though, not going insipid. There were a lot of composers who went, for, you know, at this era who wrote very insipid music. Uh, it's it's not it's not optimistic. It's just nice, you know, it's nice music and yet it's too nice he was never that there's an energy there's a strength uh, a great deal of intellectual rigor in his music but what we really hear more than anything else though I think in it is that you finish hearing any hide and piece and there's just a gazillion of them of course but you hear it and generally speaking you almost always feel refreshed and a sense of yes that's better that's what I needed. Oh. The more intellectual you are about music, the more trained you are. Also, the more you might be fascinated by it because of the level of craft involved. Uh, he was one of the great mm-hmm. craftsmen of music, and I've often found that this tendency of his to write like this came to a peak in a very late work of his. Um, unlike many composers, he lived a good long life. He didn't die young. He uh, he made it. He made it almost to seventy nine, which for that era, that's pretty darn good. Good.
2: One.
1: And he. Um, he made a couple of trips to England in the early 1790s. Uh, he had never been out of Austria, and he made these trips to England. English made him rich. Uh, he, he came back to, to Austria, to Vienna in 1795, and settled for good. And at that point, very, very affluent man, very, very comfortable. And he was very much retirement age at that point, especially by the time those times. But he kept working. He kept going. One of the things he brought back with him from England was a libretto, the words, the text, to an oratorio that had been prepared for Handel earlier in the century and that Handel had never used. It was a libretto based on the seven days of the six days plus the seventh of the creation, as in the book of Genesis and in Milton. Called the creation. And he threw everything he had into it. Uh, a whole lifetime of experience of creating this magnificent oratorio it was premiered in 17 when it was premiered 1797 1798 it was one of the great media events of uh, the century it was published in both german and english uh, so there's there's the dual text and it, he goes through the creation of of the physical world the first part ends with uh, the first sunrise, right? The, the light. Uh, in the second part, the creation of the animals and all of uh, the flora, And in the third part, humanity. Uh, so and I find it interesting that the, um, the story stops just short of the coming of the serpent in the Garden of Eden. Ah. (laughs) they don't go to that moment right (laughs) yes it ends with the newly created humanity in a state of absolute grace you know and so on and it's exemplified by a wonderful tenor aria that's in here and it's it's a sentiment that you probably wouldn't hear so often in our modern world because the sentiment of the human being at creation is in native worth And honor clad. So this vision of humanity as inherently good, Uh, and so and that's very much in keeping with this 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 man and the Enlightenment, the idea that yes, we are basically we're good. And he's just and this this territory is not going to let on uh, to the fact that that's going to (laughs) change. You know, (laughs) that's going to change. And so we have this marvelous aria, this tenor aria. He was very proud of it. And there's a story that's pretty well attested. I wouldn't believe it otherwise, but it is pretty well attested. In 1809, Haydn was on his deathbed. And uh, there was a, the siege of Vienna was going on. Napoleon was shelling Vienna. And he had put an honor guard around Haydn's neighborhood to make sure the old man wasn't bothered. Heard, heard by this, keep him, keep him safe, right? And the story has it so the day before Haydn died, a French soldier from Napoleon's army went to visit him. And uh, the students that were watching over the house let him in. And Papa Haydn was asleep in the afternoon. The soldier went over to Haydn's piano and began playing and singing in native worth in honor clad. Everybody knew this aria. And the story goes, he felt a hand on his shoulder, and it was Haydn who had woken up hearing his aria. And Haydn sat down next to him and they sang the aria together and played it. Oh and yeah, Haydn died in the early hours of the morning that night.
0: Oh, what wonderful.
1: Oh, it's incredible. The, uh, and apparently it's true. I mean, it's the sort of thing if somebody had written it in a novel, you wouldn't believe it, but apparently it's true. So what I'd like to do, of course, is uh, give you a, a slide here of uh, a very fine tenor, John Humphreys, singing in Native Worth and Honor Clad. Uh, my slide that I'm going to put up for you will have the text so you can read it the first paragraph is about adam and the second paragraph is about you know who how she loves him she loves him and is going to be his helpmeet. meet uh, so this is uh here comes the uh here comes the share and this uh wonderful performance of this uh, and in english And this tenor has a wonderful attribute. His diction is nice and clear. So you can pretty much hear the words just fine, which is more than I can say for some performances. So here we go with this wonderful, healthy, optimistic, happy aria.
3: we Ourself is pure delight, is our is pure delight with virgin grace. Oh
1: <laughs> just the sheer sweetness of that um i'm sure our listeners probably noticed the english is a little different it's a slightly different translation of the german uh that they used. it's more modern english and i rather like him saying she loves him rather than bespeak him love which is a little you know stilted uh so the translation's a little more modern and so on Uh, but it's uh, certainly a very, very optimistic and wonderful, heart-filling piece uh, with that. We seem to have a question here, I think, do we? I was wondering if we...
0: uh... Uh, We do, and I'm I'm interested in um, this question about um, do musicians need an audience to get the most enjoyment of playing their instrument? Well, that's a wonderful question.
1: Thank it's you. that
0: Yeah. It's wonderful.
1: Well, it's I would say it's a different experience. All right. Um, when you're playing for an audience, your attention needs to be on your audience. Mm-hmm. You need to be thinking of them. What am I giving them? How are they responding? Are we are, commu- you know, there's a silent communication from their side to the stage, but you feel it. And so there's this, this, feeling of the need to reach your audience and so it's much more outward now when you're playing on your own say you're just home you know on the piano it's all inward and so you are much more playing for you uh you are much more doing it for yourself uh and so on so there's a very different feel to it Um, you know part of a musician's training is to learn to make that shift and uh, I, many of my students in some of my more performance-oriented classes, like the sight singing classes, where we do a lot of uh, singing, and as I have to tell them, it says, you know, if you're home working on your own, singing to yourself or playing to yourself, and if something goes wrong, you can go back and change it and fix it. But you do that on stage, you're going to confuse your audience. You have to make sure that you keep going. And so we need to learn to make the shift. And uh, I always tell them, you have to imagine that in Row 5 Center, you have a listener there. I call her Agnes. That's my name for her, but whoever you want, she bought her ticket. She wants to hear you and she wants to have a wonderful concert. You're doing all this for her. Everything you do is for her. Making her happy and giving her a good night. So your habits that you develop as a private musician are not going to serve you well here. You're going to have to make sure that you're thinking more outwardly. Just for example, if you make a mistake, don't go back and correct it uh, because it confuses them. Just plow on, you know, uh, keep going. Uh, The same thing is true, by the way, in public speaking. (laughs) Don't go back and correct something even if you mangle a word. Just go on. (laughs) People will make the connection, you know. Uh, So this difference that we have, the obligation to our performer, uh, to our listener that we must make, plus then, though, our obligation to ourselves to make it work for us. So we live in these two worlds. Uh, We go into music for ourselves, I think, most of us. We want to be part of this life in music, this career in music. We want to be part of it. So that's this very self-oriented aspect to it. And it's great. Nothing wrong with it at all. But if we are performers, we're going to be spending a lot of our career other-oriented reaching out and so to my mind this is you know there's this two-sided aspect to it and you really do you do change personas when you are performing for an audience
0: I'm speaking as a a choral singer myself Mm -hmm. uh, the presence of the audience is everything
2: Mm-hmm. When
0: you walk out and you see hundreds of people there with their wrapped faces waiting for you, mm-hmm. the thrill, the adrenaline yes. is, uh, sky high and it, <laughs> it makes, it makes the experience that no rehearsal can touch.
1: Mm-hmm. No, the performance is a whole special animal in and of itself. Mm-hmm. Um, it really is. There's a, of course, the risk of the live performance, of course, you know, especially if you're a soloist, uh, if things go wrong, oh, my heavens, you know, and yeah. that's part of learning is how to cover. You know, we all find ways to cover. Um, and but it's a big thrill. And often you learn a lot about playing a piece you've been studying for a while. It usually doesn't settle down until you've had a couple of at least a couple of live performances or more. Uh, you know, for example, if you're going to do a commercial recording of a piece, you, you must you've got to have performed it in public quite a bit first. Uh, it it changes it it trans it it really makes a difference um, mm-hmm. that uh, and only live performance can do that only getting there in front of the audience uh, will will bring the piece to life for you at that level and so I, I agree with that completely I mean there's something totally different about it uh, however you know for those of us like pianists sitting at home and just being you know doing music well there's there's that's a beautiful thing in and of itself it's uh, mm-hmm. It's a form of meditation in many ways. Um, Mm -hmm. Many musicians learning to practice, which of course is one of the great arts to this, learning to practice effectively. Uh, Some of the things we have to deal with are some of the problems that meditators have as well, uh, that the mind starts creating all kinds of problems for us. The monkey mind. The monkey mind. And we have to, and we start having to learn not to buy into that. Uh, You know, as one of my teachers said, you have to treat this like you're on the platform of a train station, there are trains going every which way, you've got hands full of tickets, but you never get on those trains. You just stay there, you know, stay there and you be you and you do what you're doing. And don't get carried away by whatever's happening in your mind while you're practicing. Mm.
2: Uh, Mm-hmm.
1: so it's and that's one of the great arts to being a musician is learning to practice effectively which means efficiently uh productively and not wasting a lot of time just sitting there uh if you're getting a concert ready playing and playing and just in fantasy land because very often mm-hmm. what you're going to do is you're going to reinforce a lot of bad habits and you're going to you you, you're going to hammer things in you
0: have to be both focused and mindful
1: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you do what's goal uh, yeah. is Yeah, I spend quite Mm. a bit of time as a teacher. uh, I I would say the bulk of my time actually as a teacher uh, teaching students how to practice, uh, Mm. which is something I teach me how to do as well because I've been prone to all of these problems. I've, uh, you know, uh, when you practice and then your mind just goes elsewhere, you know, and you're Mm. off somewhere else and you don't even realize it, you know. Uh,
0: Speaking of of teaching uh, this pandemic, must have changed your life as a teacher oh, and yeah. <laughs> your, your students. What, what kind of changes did you have to go through? It was quite large.
1: Um, you know, obviously, I stayed home, you know, rather than being in person. And the students, we were all on Zoom, basically, you know, so we were all little rectangles on a screen. I would say that the certain topics that I teach, such as music theory, which are mostly lecture-based... Uh, some interaction, but mostly that that transferred easily. Uh, that was the use of my iPad as a whiteboard with staff lines on it and doing a lot of that. But performance-based courses, which is what ear training courses are, those had to undergo a lot of changes. Um, for example, we could not do any ensemble singing together. The, time, the The lag in Zoom just makes that completely impossible. And so to replace that, for example, I had my students doing singing together with recorded piano accompaniments that they would do, play the accompaniment, sing to it, and then submit that as a file. Um, I had to rewrite almost everything I do, as a matter of fact. Many of my colleagues uh, had the same experience. We were able to make it work uh, pretty successfully. Uh, It was a lot more work for us and in some cases for the students but they were quite good about it. Um, One of the difficulties we had is that some of the students were not here in these time zones. We have a number of international students and they were away where they are, and so they could not participate in real time. They would have to watch recordings of the class and then submit stuff later. Um, that, That was a big, big challenge. But along the way, I also learned a bunch of new techniques of doing things. Which I will be carrying forward when we return to live teaching in the fall. Uh, as, as I mentioned earlier, the use of the iPad became uh, it became indispensable, and I will keep it with me. I will be using it in my classrooms. Okay. Uh, so that has been the biggest change. I, some of the students have undergone some emotional difficulties with these changes, and we've we've had to roll with that and work with that, of course, including us. We've also had sometimes to deal with this feeling of isolation and that but mm-hmm. we made it through we made it through as departments we talked together we came up with strategies and uh, with the support of our schools and our students we made it through we've made it through we're we're in the last week now so we've we've emerged successfully
0: Made <laughs> so <laughs> from your lips to God's ears
1: i tell you you know <laughs> well uh- as students you know I had to change my delivery style for from too right so we had to make a difference yes. mm-hmm.
0: but it, we did it we did it and mm-hmm. we have a request now mm-hmm. would you play something for us right now that you think is uh, uh, something you would like to say with your fingers
1: well I've only got a few minutes so let me do something very very simple all yeah. right a little something yeah. but something we all know okay something we all know Music teachers, whoever the great teacher Johann Sebastian Bach, writing this to help train his own students, who were typically his own sons and daughters. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. his own sons. Oh my goodness.
1: Yeah, and the greatest teacher probably of us all, probably the greatest of us all. So. Isn't that
0: interesting? You never think of him as a teacher.
1: You don't, but he, of course he was, uh, very much so. He taught a lot of people, and his own sons, of course, many of whom became leading musicians of their generation. And a great deal of his keyboard music is training music. He wrote it as stuff for, with which to teach his students. Uh, and so uh, he designed it for them. And those little pieces, that's from the notebook of Anna Magdalena Bach, who was his second wife.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And it was a little family album where they collected pieces together. Daddy wrote some, other people did. Uh, it's a whole little grab bag. And it would be like their little family album of music that they would all learn to play. And Daddy mm-hmm. would teach them. Yeah, yes. Uh, so
2: extraordinary. And didn't even
0: some of his sons become quasi-competitors? All of them as music? Style changed from uh, the Baroque to the classical.
1: To some degree, yes. Some degree, yes. Although, generally speaking, they 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 revered him so much, of course, that uh, they were interested in carrying on his legacy. Uh, his second son, Philip Emmanuel, is the reason we have some of the great Bach choral works, like the St. Matthew. So he protected mm-hmm. them and passed them on to us. Mm-hmm. So yeah.
0: some time ago, Scott, I remember reading passage in something that where someone had done a uh, very early uh, treatment of all the, the keys
2: mm-hmm.
0: available that some were better for happy or sad or mood or anger applied. You, have you come across that?
1: Okay, so, uh, so uh, I have. Uh, so that last question, we may not have quite time, but I will tell you that, yes, there is. And keys, key centers do have different emotional effects, uh, very much so it, to this day, to this day. Uh, they very much do. There are some that are brighter and some that are softer than others. So, yes, okay. It's looking yes, like we're about wrap time, aren't we? We're about time to wrap up now.
0: Will, mm-hmm. Ben. Uh, I don't think that we're ever done with you, Professor Vogelsong. (laughs) I hope not. (laughs) Um, But but I will. um, No, 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 never. Uh, I want to thank you for your time and your presence and your music and your comfort and your joy. Well, most generally with us. Well, thank you
1: so much. Thank you for having me. And uh, it was a great pleasure sharing all of this with all of you. Uh, It really is a great pleasure. Thank you.
0: Thank you. And this concludes this meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California with a reminder that you can donate to support the club and you can volunteer to be part of the action. Thank you. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play and Stitcher.